game show host. It's like game show music. Today on Wheel of Prayer. Yeah. Lord, I apologize if that's last. Now, listen to Pastor Gabe. Now, who, who among you can recite all the announcements that Pastor Gabe gave? Details, events. George, you're the one. Okay. All right. And I'm not going to put you on the spot and make you do it. Check out our, our uh, flyer door that's out there. Check out our website. We have so many ways that we try to get across to everybody the things that are happening around here. There's always something happening. We've got all kinds of stuff going on. My biggest heartache is when people miss it and afterwards, like, when was that thing going to be? And I was like, well, last night or last week, and, and we miss it. So make an effort to do that. I had my ears perked up when Pastor Gabe was talking about Bike Club, and, of course, my first thing is, how are we going to vent the exhaust fumes out of the sanctuary? How does that work? And I thought, oh, that's not the kind of bike club she's talking about, which, uh, all right, well, we'll have to find another way. I wanted to throw out something, and I haven't really done this much yet. Uh, I belong to a group of Christian motorcyclists called the Christian Motorcyclists Association. In fact, two of my good friends are right up here in the third row um, visiting from, from our club. But we're starting a new chapter of that that is geared specifically towards sport bikes, dirt bikes, race bikes of all various kinds. And if you have one of those black bikes that goes along with a lot of leather, you're included too. You're welcome too. I know uh, my good friend Jack over here is thinking about joining us. Um, But we use motorcycles to go out and spread the word of Christ. One, the, the motto is one heart at a time, right? Changing lives one heart at a time. But isn't that what the gospel is? One at a time. We don't need to go out and save everybody we meet, but we do have to share the gospel with those that we do. And it's up to Jesus to change their hearts, right? But we don't do that by acting like everyone else does. And one of the things I love about the club that I'm a part of is that we're different. We don't do that. We don't go to, you won't find us at a bar drinking beer and, and doing all those kind of things that biker clubs typically are associated with. We spread the gospel. We pray over bikes. We, we give people uh, Bibles if they don't have one. We pray with people and for people, and that's what it's about. I'm bringing up all this because it ties so nicely into the message today. Today, we're going to talk about a section of Scripture. First of all, I'll back up and do a little recap, but about how to keep yourself set apart as holy the way that Jesus intended for us. So I want you to think about that as we go in, wherever you are, whatever you do, Scripture tells us, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, right? Whatever, whatever hobbies, whatever talents, whatever gifts, whatever circles of influence that the Lord has put you in, we are to use those things to spread the gospel and to be a reflection of who he is in the world. And so that's why I bring that up. No matter what you do, you can't go... I have to keep this part of my life separate and set apart as its own thing. And then I have my church life over here. That's not how it works if you're a follower of Jesus. We are always called to be be on station, to be on guard, to be on because people are watching. And the more they know that you're a Christian, the more that you advertise or you post or you wear a shirt or you wear a cross or somehow or another they know you're a Christian, the more they know the more important it is to be a representation of who Jesus is on this earth. It matters, guys. People are watching. So 
let's get into the message here. We are in the Gospel of Mark, okay? We're in week 25 of the Gospel of Mark. If you missed any of the other ones out there online, wherever you are, you can go to our website, and there's an archive right there. You can catch all the previous messages if you want or the the ones that you may have missed. But we call it Jesus the Servant Messiah. That's because the Gospel of Mark, I love the Gospel of Mark. It's all about how Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Matthew is all about Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King. Mark is about Jesus came to serve. And we see over and over again in the Gospel of Mark just these times when Jesus was just laying him out there to just serve, sometimes to his physical detriment, just becoming completely exhausted. But there's no end to ministry. When you are, when you are a minister of the gospel, you do it 24-7 all the time. We are all called to do that, whether you're paid to do it or whether you are, are just a disciple of Christ. It's supposed to be all the time. You can't flip the switch. You don't punch in and out on being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's who we are all the time, and Mark is all about that. So when we got into, let's go back and just do a quick recap of the last couple weeks just to get everybody up to speed. When we last saw his disciples, Jesus had, he'd been kicked out of Nazareth for, because they were way too familiar with him, and they said, we, we can't listen to you. We know who you are. Kicked him out of town. Jesus then sends his disciples out to preach around the Galilee region, specifically the 12 that he set aside as special. He empowers them, sends them out to preach, to do miracles, to heal the sick, to anoint with oil, to do all of those things that they had seen Jesus do. But in his power, they were empowered to go out and do that. So they went out and did all that. Then they're tired from preaching. They probably have some great stories they want to share with Jesus and, and just rest and recover. They come back, and before they even have a chance to do that, they jump in a boat because the crowds are all over the place, and they head out to a place where hopefully, theoretically, they can be a little bit more private and maybe recover there. They get to the other side, and where they are is they're in Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a place where crowds again gather around and they're crowding all over and Jesus is doing ministry again. Think about the disciples. They're there like, okay, okay, as soon as we get in the boat and go to the other side, then we can rest, then we can eat, then we can just chill out and recover for a little bit. I don't know if Jesus ever answered them. We don't know in scripture, but he probably went, you'd like to think that's what's going to happen, but it's not. They get there, and they preach, and they do ministry, and they do it all day long until it's late. And at the end of the day, the disciples are like, send everybody home. They need to eat. We need to eat. Send everybody home. And that's where the miraculous happens. That's where the fishes and loaves multiplication comes in. We taught about that. So I won't go into that again, but that was just such an amazing time seeing God's provision from that that need happen right there. Then... Jesus says, okay, we're done here. Why don't you guys go on ahead? Why don't you head back to the other side? Since there's such a crowd here, you go back to the other side, I'll catch up with you. They get in the boat, and they head out to leave. Now, maybe they're thinking, okay, when we get to the other side, we can finally rest, and we can eat, and we can relax. Jesus stays behind, sends them out. We find them just straining at the oars. There's a headwind. There's storms kicking up. They're trying to get to the other side, and they're making, it's the middle of the night, it's three in the morning, and they're making very little progress. Then they look off to the side, and here comes Jesus. 
just walking on the water, just like, hey, guys, how you doing? See you on the other side. They cry out to him. And he comes over and joins them in the boat. <clears throat> and the sea's calm. The wind's calm. And they can make it to the other side. So our lesson from that is no matter how many miracles you have seen Jesus do, no matter how many miracles you've personally been a part of, no matter the things that the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do, the the gifts of the Spirit that you have exercised and the things you've seen, if you're not plugged into Jesus, it's not going to happen. Just because you've seen it doesn't mean it's going to happen at your command. Jesus needs to be a part of it. And when he joins them, they finally make it to the other side. Now what we see is this lesson that's kind of encapsulated in John, 5, 5, John 15, 5. If you don't have your Bible with you, by the way, first of all, I'd recommend bringing it. But if you didn't, I'll put some up on screen. I'll read the others to you. So you're never going to be at a loss saying, I don't know where we are and what we're doing. John 15, 5 says this. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, remain in him. And the lesson there, really our takeaway from what they saw here is that it can't become a formula. We as human beings are so quick to say, I saw it happen like this, therefore that's how it always happens. Jesus time and time again is trying to teach them this idea that just because you've never seen this doesn't mean it can't be done. Just because you have seen this doesn't mean that's how it's always done. He's trying to get them used to the idea and they're they are struggling like we all would. They're no, no different. They're struggling too. The worst thing I think you can say is this is how it always works. Bible said it happened like that. That's how it always works. That's what we're going to do. He runs into that situation when they finally, they get to the other side. They land at this place called Genesaret. And in Genesaret, they get out. And Scripture tells us, we taught about this last week, people are coming from all over the place. They're bringing the sick on mats to be healed. And from all over the countryside, people are just flocking so much for rest and a meal and anything. People are already flocking to him. They come there. But here's what they're doing. They said, Scripture tells us that they're saying, we'll bring our sick from mats on their mats from all over the region and if they can just touch the fringe of his cloak, they'll be healed. Because remember, not long ago, that's what happened to the woman who was bleeding. She went up, snuck through the crowd, and all she wanted to do is just touch the fringe of his garment, and she could be healed. What well, happened? Jesus took compassion on her and healed her, even though that's not a formula. It was her faith that made her well. But they see that, and they go, oh, that's the secret. We just have to touch his friend. Maybe we'll just have Jesus stand. We'll just file by, and we'll just touch the fringe as we walk by. Who knows how they were, what they had in their mind. But they had reduced it to a formula. This is how it's done. We have to resist the urge to say it happened once, therefore it has to happen that way every time. Jesus will not allow himself to be put in a box. So this time... We're going to talk about our lesson for today, Mark 7, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. We're going to talk about this. Now, before we get into that, um, I want to ask you, a key term that keeps coming up in this section of Scripture is to defile or to be defiled. If I ask you, what do you think, what does the word defile mean to you? 
Would anybody have a picture of what being defiled means to you or to defile something? Unclean? Yeah, but in a, in a bigger sense, unsuitable for use, like it's wasted, it's ruined, right? That's what I think most of us would think of. And you're not far off, but there's a biblical definition that we're going to talk about here that's even more important for us to grasp. And that's kind of at the core of our, of our teaching here today. So follow along as we talk about this. Now, I told you that, that Jesus was traveling village to village. People were bringing the sick on mats, and he was healing them one after another, one after another. And someone who caught wind of this, as they're likely to do, and they continue to do all through Scripture here, is the Pharisees in Jerusalem hear about this, all this commotion. They decide they're going to go up and check it out for themselves. They get there, and they witness Jesus healing just flocks and flocks of people healing them with just a touch, with just a word, healing people one after another. And they decide, we can't allow this travesty to continue. People being healed. I should have gotten at least a chuckle out of you like, eh. I wouldn't, or maybe you're like, yeah, they can't allow all that healing to continue. So they press in around Jesus. Remember, there's crowds, crowds all around him, so they're kind of pressing into this crowd too. What they're looking for, though, is not healing. They're not looking to touch the fringe of his garment. What they're looking for is can we hear him say something or do something that we can hang him with, something so blasphemous that is absolutely everybody's going to know or maybe he breaks a law. Maybe he breaks some moral code. Something like that. They're looking for ammunition to use against him. And they press in. Mark 7.1 says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to him after they came in from Jerusalem. They're not there for a meeting. Again, they're kind of infiltrating the crowd looking for something. But they find out that there's nothing here that we can pin Jesus with. They're seeing healing. They're seeing all these things. But he's not saying or doing anything blasphemous, right? It obviously wasn't on a Sabbath when they were there, or they would have pinned that on him. But they can't find anything to charge Jesus with right there, so they start looking around. And what they do is they find this poor group of disciples just trying to finally settle down and relax and have a meal. They're over here. Maybe they're over there. I don't know. We don't know for sure. But they're off to the side, and they're eating. They're probably sitting there going, go, Jesus, you heal. We'll just recharge here, and then we'll be with you in a minute. We're having some lunch. The Pharisees see them doing that, and they go over and challenge them. Mark 7, 2, and saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed. That's a problem? It is a problem to them. Here's why. This is not just a quick hand wash for sanitary purposes. Right, Not just wash off the germs. We don't know where your hands have been. They're dirty, whatever. Wash them off. Let's eat. This is a ceremonial wash that they're trying to pin them with. These guys just came off, off the boat, out of the field. They're hungry. There's not a rest area in the middle of the Galilee. They just got there, and they're just trying to eat. Mark 7, verses 3 and 4 says, now this is all in parentheses. I want to point this out to you. It's all in parentheses because Mark is not writing to a Jewish audience. Mark is writing to largely a Gentile audience. And they would not necessarily have understood some of these things. So in your Bible, 
if it has a section that's in parentheses, that is the author himself. That's not some writer or the guy who translated your issue, uh, your, your Bible. That's Mark saying, here's what this means and explaining the significance of that. So that is in there. That's not something that was just added later. So Mark 7, 3 and 4 says, For the Pharisees, again, in parentheses, For the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly, listen to this, to the tradition of the elders. Hang on to that thought for a second. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. Close parentheses there. That word cleanse or wash, where it's in there, translates as the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo, to baptize, that we talk about, which is a ceremonial cleansing. So the translation of that word to wash or to cleanse, it doesn't mean you're just cleansing it for utilitarian purposes. It's a ceremonial cleansing. So the Pharisees are saying, why are these guys not ceremonially cleansing their hands before they have lunch? That's the biggest thing that they are trying to pin on him. Now that's actually a, that's an important thing in the Jewish culture is this, is this ceremony. And so the, the idea of a holy hand cleansing, the Jewish holy hand cleansing, it looks like this. Here's what it even still looks like, what they teach today. Now, I've pared it down, but in essence, it's a five-step process to ceremonially cleanse your hands before you can eat. Number one, someone pours water from a jar over another's hands, okay? Makes sense so far, right? But the fingers must be pointing up. So you must be holding your fingers pointing up. Now, you pour the water over and you wash your hands until the water begins to run clear. And when it runs clear, it says specifically that the water has to drip off at the wrist versus just, you know, running down your elbow. Supposedly, I've never been this clean before, but as soon as your hands are clean enough, it'll drip off at the wrist versus run down your arms. So that's an important step. And once that happens, you can move on to the next step, which is pouring water over your hands with your fingers pointing down. So you start this way, then you change this way. Again, you wash until the water runs clear. And then each palm was then rubbed with the fist of the other hand. Okay, like this, like this. Once you do that, and only once you do all that, then were you considered ceremonially clean, and then you could eat. Okay, and that doesn't even count the different prayers and blessings that you, that you would traditionally do before a meal. That's just the, the holy hand washing that they do. Now, does anybody know where in the Bible, where in the book of Moses specifically that outlines that holy hand washing process? Anybody know? Good answer. It is not in there. When we talk about the traditions of men, we're going to talk about that just a little bit more in depth. Now, those of you who really know your word in Leviticus, Leviticus 22, it does outline a procedure for washing but that is for priests who are about to offer a sacrifice. So it does address that just for priests, just in that specific situation. But what has happened is that they have expanded on these Mosaic laws, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, called the Torah, full of, full of law 
they have added to it what they call their tradition of elders. The tradition of elders is a set of oral interpretations of Mosaic law. It's important to think about here. So they have taken the laws of Moses and essentially it started out orally, but then about the end of the second century, they actually wrote it down. They wrote it down in a separate book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is, is essentially how to interpret the laws of Moses. It's kind of a, of a companion, if you will, to Scripture. The problem is, though, that they have elevated that oral tradition, that oral interpretation to equal with Scripture, and in some cases even overriding Scripture. This is the problem that Jesus is having here. Then they pair that with another book <coughs> called the Jamara. And you take the Jamara and the Mishnah together, and that makes the Talmud, which I've talked about before. And the Talmud, again, is just a, it's a scripture interpretation and application manual, kind of the best way to phrase that. So since they are so into tradition, these oral traditions, they follow their own tradition. And when they go to ask about, like, why are they not washing their hands properly before they eat. They don't confront the disciples directly. They actually go and confront their teacher. That's how it was done. That was etiquette. That was proper form. You don't confront them for what they know and don't know. You talk to their teacher and ask why they don't know it. So they wait until Jesus is in a break or something in between. Maybe they interrupt him. I don't know. But they go and they, Mark 7, 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands? Now remember the scene. There is a mob around Jesus, and he is healing one after another after another. Can you imagine this group of Pharisees and scribes walking up and going, I know you're about to be made whole. You haven't walked in your entire life, and he's about to heal you, but hang on. Hold on. We got something more important here. Why are they not washing their hands correctly? Can you even, it sounds ridiculous to us, but that is the, that is, when your heart is so focused on the law and what you interpret as right, sometimes we overlook the miraculous. We're so focused on that's not how it should be done instead of the, but it's being done. And look what's happening right there. We're no different. It happens to all of us at one time or another. But that's where we are. That's the scene of all this, right? They're, they're witnessing all this healing and all this amazing stuff going on, and they resort to these accusations, these petty accusations. And you're about to see, we see a few examples in Scripture about Jesus and righteous anger. You're about to see one of them right here. Jesus turns to them, Mark 7, 6 through 7. But he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah was written hundreds of years before this, but prophesied that this exact thing was going to happen. Maybe some of it was already happening at that point. That's Isaiah 29, 13, by the way, those of you who like to cross-reference that stuff. He's quoting directly from Isaiah. Mark 7, 8 says, Neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to the traditions of men. 
That's kind of a twofold accusation back at them. Number one, neglecting the commandments of God. So not only are you not doing what God commands, you have substituted your own and placed them equal or even above God's commandments. That's a problem. Now, if you were one of them, your first response, normal human behavior would have been gone, when have we done that? So he doesn't even wait for them to ask the question, like, prove it. Or when have we done that? He launches right in. Mark 7, 9. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And the one who speaks evil of father and mother is certainly to be put to death. Now that's quoted. That's not up there. Was it up there? There it is. Where it's all caps in my, I use the New American Standard. That's my translation that I just like. Anytime you see all caps, caps lock didn't get stuck on while we were typing that. That's intentional, and that means that's quoting from Scripture, specifically from Old Testament Scripture. And the first part is actually the fifth commandment, Exodus 20.12, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The second part is Exodus 21. Don't speak evil of your father or mother, and you're to be put to death. So here's the thing. Commandments and Mosaic law ought to be the highest bar that the Pharisees would look at, right? When they're judging something, they ought to look at that. Here's the problem, though. They are always trying to reconcile this law with this law. And when they come into collision with one another, Which one takes precedence, and how do you interpret that? That's where the whole oral tradition and coming all the way down then to to the Mishnah and all these things, that's where that comes from, is trying to reconcile those things. See, we have the Holy Spirit to help us reconcile those things. So they're trying to write down what the Holy Spirit would help us to reconcile. They're not always super successful in doing that. See, Mark 7, 11, and 12 says, but you say, now remember, this is going back. He's saying, honor your father and mother, and the one who speaks evil of the father and mother is certainly to be put to death. Then verse 11 and 12, but you say, if a person says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban. Again, here's that translation. That is given to God. You no longer allow him to do anything for his father and his mother. He's putting them in a position of a conundrum trying to reconcile this. It's an example. The word korban is a, is a Hebrew word, and it means sacred treasure to the temple. So what he's saying, just kind of a quick translation, sorry, mom and dad, I'd like to help you, but I can't. The things you need, I've already promised to God. So Jesus is putting him in this position. Okay, so which is higher? Verse 13, thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many such things as that. See, it's this constant tension. He's saying, like, if you have this situation and this situation, how do they reconcile? Making them think about this. They do this all the time. See, Exodus 20 and 21 outlined the whole commandment to honor your parents. But then Numbers 30, which they also would have known about, says if you make a vow to the Lord or you take an oath, then you shall not break that oath. So here you've made an oath to give these things to God. And now something has come up. Now your parents need help. Do you honor your parents? Or do you say, 
Sorry, I'd like to, but this belongs to God. Okay, that's not a light question. The problem, though, this tension comes in when you try and add to the word. And that's where this oral tradition came in. Because what the Pharisees had decided, and these guys didn't, this was oral tradition handed down according to the oral law, an oath always overrode everything else. So these guys, in this illustration, he had made an oath to give the things to the temple, and now something comes up, and he's bound now by oral tradition. Sorry, I'd love to help you. I can't. I already made an oath. We can talk about oaths a whole nother time. Jesus is now, he's done with the Pharisees. He's done explaining that to them, but he has to turn and address the crowd who is listening to this back and forth so that they understand what's happening here. And he does this. He turns back to the crowd. Mark 7, 14, 15. After he called the crowds to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which come out of the person are what defile the person. He's saying any kind of food or drink, whether you wash your hands or not, Okay, it's what comes out. Now, if you're in the crowd and you're listening and you're going, okay, what comes out of a person? So you might conclude, okay, okay, so like poop is the only defiling thing? I just said that in church. Now, if you've got a young one at home, you might go, yes, yes, poop is very defiling. Some scholars, though, would actually argue yes and talk and add to that virtually any other bodily fluid without going too deep into it is what is defiling. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Let's take a second and look at that word defile again. I brought it up at the very beginning, but if you've been thinking about what does defile really mean, there's a dictionary definition, okay, which is to ruin something and render it unusable. Okay, that's dictionary definition. But biblically, the word defile is actually a Greek word, koinoo, And what it means is to make common or to treat what is sacred as common or ordinary. Think about that. If you allow yourself to become defiled, you are taking what God has set aside as sacred and using it for something ordinary. You're allowing what God has declared to be sacred and set apart and holy for him and you're allowing it to become ordinary. That's a bigger thing than I think you're thinking about. That's a big thing. When you allow yourself to become defiled, that which God set apart as holy, when you allow yourself to become defiled, you're definitely still usable, but not by God. You're usable by the enemy. In fact, the more you allow it, the more you are better suited for the enemy's purposes. That's not where we're called to be. I'll get back to that in just a second. Depending on your translation now, you might be going, okay, verse 16. Wait, where's verse 16? Anybody had that thought? They're following along and, hey, there's no verse 16 in my Bible. Now, depending on your translation, it might be in in brackets or might have an asterisk next to it. Verse 16 is one that most, most modern scholars agree doesn't belong in Scripture. What it says, for those of you who don't have it, just says, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. It's something Jesus says a lot, 
but he didn't say it there. The idea in the research shows that back when they were translating the King James Version, one of the scribes added that verse to it. It's kind of like hallelujah and amen to what Jesus just taught. It doesn't change the theology of it. It's just something that was added later. I point that out to you just so that you know those things that look like mistakes or omissions or something weird, look into them. Look at the reason why it's either worded the way it is, why it's there, why it's not there. Look at those things and find out for yourself because the last thing that the Bible ever is, is in error. It is never in error. So that's, that's enough for that. I just point that out so it's not confusing. Now, confusion is something the disciples are dealing with here. They've been listening. They heard what Jesus said. Then they gather their stuff. They're finished there, and they head back home. Mark 7, 17. And when he later entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. Okay, so most people think he returned back to Capernaum. We don't know how far of a walk that was. Probably to Peter and Andrew's home that was there. And they had probably been wrestling with that statement, trying to figure it out. Maybe even as they walked, talking it back over with each other, like, what do you think he meant by that, that whole defilement? Does that include this? Does that include that? What does this mean? And what they're probably just debating it back and forth as they walked along. And then they get asked, and then they get back in a private place, and the disciples ask him. Matthew 15, 5 adds, or is descriptive, says it's Peter who actually asked that question. Mark 7, 18, 19, and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Again, there's those parentheses. Thereby he declared all foods clean. That's a huge teaching in its own for another day. But he's declaring all foods clean at that point. Now notice when, back, when Jesus was back with the crowd and he was healing and he taught, he taught them just a tiny little clip, but he didn't chastise them for what they didn't know. He didn't chastise them for not understanding or quiz them or anything. He just, he just said that wisdom and let it go. But these guys should have known better by now. See, they had already, by this time, they had already been witness to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest collection of, of teaching and wisdom ever in the history of mankind, Right there, they had a front row seat to that. And they had the teacher who they could ask questions of, and still they struggled with this question. So if you go to Matthew 5, which is where the Sermon on the Mount starts, verse 22 says, Anger and name-calling toward a brother are just as egregious as murder. And verse 28 says, Looking lustfully at a woman is the same as committing adultery in your heart. Verse 29 says, if your eyes are causing you to sin, tear them out and throw them away. And many, many more. The idea is what's in your heart, where your thoughts are, your intentions. That's what the problem is, not the specific law. And yet these guys are still struggling with that idea. Mark 7.20, and he was saying, that which comes out of the person, that is what defiles the person. Now if we go to Matthew 15, 18, Matthew adds this, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and those things defile the person. So Matthew pins it down and says they come out of the mouth. They start in the heart, they come out of the mouth. That's what defiles you. Mark 7, 21, 22, from within, out of the hearts of people, 
come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. What a fun list at church on Sunday morning, right? Those things proceed from the heart, and those things defile people. Now, a lot of those are lumped into a category called sins of the tongue, and a lot of people believe, a lot of pastors believe, and I think I believe this too, those can be the most dangerous of all sins because they don't just hurt you. They hurt everyone around you. They hurt someone's ability to receive Christ, and they just catch fire and have a life of their own. You can drop that and walk away, and it will continue to work long after you're gone. They can take on a life of their own and spread like wildfire. In fact, James calls them that. James, or he's, he's comparing the tongue, tiny little part of your body, seems insignificant, but he compares it to the rudder of a ship. James, we'll see, has a real problem with the tongue. Here's what he says, James 3, 5 and 6. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body's parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. I think James has a problem with the tongue. Think he's been hurt? Think he's been slandered at some point? I think so. Jesus adds this final statement to our section here. Mark 7, 23. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. Let me restate that. 723 in simpler terms. Maybe not shorter, but simpler. So operating in evil thoughts, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, are not the result of something someone does to you. They come from within. Ouch. If you allow them to control you, you make yourself just like everyone else who doesn't know Jesus. It's your choice. Things happen to you. Yes, those things, you can be presented with those options. You can be lied to by the enemy. You can be placed in a situation as a result of someone else's sin, but what do you do with it? Do you allow it into your heart? And then eventually it's going to make its way out of your mouth? Because, man, darkness in your heart quickly, quickly turns into wicked thoughts. And once it's there, it's just an easy step out of the mouth. Darkness in your heart comes out of the tongue before you even know it. And when that train gets rolling, it can destroy everything in its path. Anybody ever had experience with that? You might lightly say that, that, that saying, you can't put the, tube, the toothpaste back in the tube, right? Once those words are out, the damage starts right there, and it is nearly impossible to put out that fire once you let them come out. James 3, 8 through 10. Again, James going on about the tongue. But no one among mankind can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. How do you really feel about the tongue, James? With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. If that doesn't hurt your heart, I don't know what will. 
From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. Then he adds what's in my heart right now. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be that way. If you think the Bible written thousands of years ago isn't appropriate for today anymore, it's an outdated document, I want you to take what I just read and substitute the word for the words tongue and mouth, substitute social media, text, and email. Let me read it again. No one among mankind can tame the tongue. Is it a restless evil full of deadly poison? With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, email, text, social media, come both blessing and cursing. It should not be this way. Now let me be clear. It's not the tool. It's the heart of the user. Social media can be a wonderful blessing. It can be a wonderful tool. Text, email, miraculous. If the heart in their use is not right, what comes out is cursing. Now I bring this up because I have seen lately even some good friends posting things that should be in a secular world, in a non-Christian world, everybody does it. This one particular had to be railing against a particular sports athlete. It's like, ah, you were never any good anyway. Good riddance, out of town. Ah, good luck. Good luck in your next town. I thought, seriously, that's a human being. A Christian human being, which I happen to know, by the way, but a, that's a human being with a family and with hopes and dreams, who didn't maybe live up to expectations here or wasn't perfect, why kick him on the way out the door? Now, you might go, oh, having a beer uh, at, the, at the bar with my friends or at the sports bar, we talk about that all the time. Good riddance. Uh, hope you go over there and create havoc there like you did here. Why do we have to be like that? The world's like that. We don't have to be like that. We can speak life. We can be different. You know why we can be different? Because Peter says we are different. This is how Peter describes you. If you're a follower of Jesus, Peter describes you like this. Peter calls us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Remember, holy just means set apart for special purposes. So my question for you is, does your life, does how you live your life, reflect that calling? Do people look at you at the grocery store, at the auto shop, at school, at your workplace, at home, anywhere but inside this building? Do people look at you and go, you're different. You are set apart. There's something different about you. If not, we need to think about that. That's our calling, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It's not what you do, what you eat, how you eat it, what you say, what you pray, how many times you go to church, how many classes you take, how many books you read, how well you know your scripture. It's none of that that makes you holy or unholy. You can do all those things, but if your heart contains darkness, that is what defiles you. And defiling is not being useful for the purpose that God intended. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people set apart for God. 
And when you allow yourself to defile, to be defiled by all of those things, what comes out of your mouth, you are no longer suitable for God's purpose, but for the enemy's purpose, you are perfect. Now I want to conclude with this. It's short, but I think it's powerful, so stay with me. Ridding your heart of that darkness is as simple as repentance. You repent of going down that road because we've all been there. I've been there. I can teach against it, but I know I was, I've been there more times than I care to imagine. But we repent and we turn away and we say, Jesus, forgive me. His blood has already cleansed you. And as many times as necessary, you can repent, turn back. Now that doesn't mean we say, I can say anything I want and then just repent and move on. That's not how it works. But when you repent and accept this higher calling, then you're accepting what Jesus did for you. So here's what I want to do. Last two things we're going to do. I'm going to pray. And I want you, if you're out there online, focus in. If you're in here in-house, focus in on what I'm saying right now. This is going to be powerful. I'm going to lead in prayer, but then I'm going to stop, and I'm going to let you pray yourselves. It doesn't have to be out loud. We're going to repent for allowing those things that defile us into our lives. Whether it's unintentional or whether we intentionally do it every Sunday afternoon or every football game we watch, whatever we do, you know what it is. And if not, we're going to ask God to point it out. Then our responsibility is to repent of it, turn away from it, and say yes to our higher calling in him. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, we have all fallen short of your glory. We are all sinful creations and we all need a Savior. We thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, to reconcile us to you, to wash us clean with his blood. By his blood, we are healed. Healed of those things that come our way. Healed of those things that can hurt us. Lord, I repent of any time I've taken that gift for granted. I repent of any time where I have ignored that gift and instead allowed myself to be just like the rest of the world. To not step into my calling as something different. Not step into my calling as a renewed creation. And I have allowed myself to be just like everyone else. Lord, show me those times. If I know where they are right now, Lord, I repent of those right now before you. And if not, I invite you to show me them. Highlight them to me, those places that might be blind spots, things I have done that I'm not aware of that do not give you glory. Show me those things, Lord. Father, I repent those things that you have shown me, those things that I already knew. I repent of allowing myself to be anything less than the prized, holy, set-apart vessel that you see me as. Father, I pray that you would help me every day to see those things, if I am letting them back into my life, that you would show them to me. I will walk away from them and into the holy calling that you have for me. 
So Father, I thank you for the cleansing blood of Jesus. I thank you for mercies renewed every day. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. Church, your higher calling was already purchased for you at an exorbitant cost. Something we could never afford. But it's offered to you for free. Free of earthly charge. But accepting that calling and walking in that calling will cost you your life as you know it. You can't live that old life anymore. When you accept Jesus, you are called into a higher thing. And you can no longer say, I'll be this Monday through Friday and I'll be this on the weekends. That's not how it works. That calling cost a lot. Cost the life of Jesus. Now I want to close this message in prayer like we always do, but I want to pray this together. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Let's pray this together as we close this out. Will you just pray it with me? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, worship team, you guys can come up. We're going to take communion together right now. We do this every time we gather together. And every time we gather together, we need to do it intentionally. It's not just, it's time to do that, so let's do it. What we just prayed, we accepted the higher calling of Jesus. And we recognize that it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. When we take communion together, we thank him for his sacrifice on the cross. And we line up next to him and say, yes, I will carry that banner of who you are throughout this world. Not just on Sundays, but every day of my life. This is who I am now. When we take communion together, we declare that. That is a public declaration that yes, I say yes. So if you're out there, online, wherever you are, don't just ignore this. It's not, service isn't over. Take communion together. Let's declare this together before God. If you're here in house, my, my prayer would be that you all would. But if you're in this place where you need to pray about it, you need to maybe repent a little bit more, do that. And then we have communion at the crosses. You can serve yourself there if you'd like. There's juice there. Up front here, Gabe and I have bread and wine, and we'd be happy to serve you. You just line up. We dip and eat the bread that way. But remember, when we do it, it's not just a thing we do because we do it. We do it declaring that we accept that we are a renewed creation and we accept the higher calling that he died to give. Amen? Thank you, guys. And we also have prayer team in the back. So if you need prayer for any of that, there is someone in the back with a lanyard or without. Find someone to pray with you because this is a powerful time. We can lift up those people that had illnesses that they posted online. There are people in here who have things they need prayer for. Don't leave this resource, this resource of brothers and sisters in Christ who care about you. Don't just leave it and go out in the world to deal with it on your own. Let's lean on each other. That's what prayer is, and let's do that together. Amen? Thank you, guys.